0: So the other day I got yet another invitation. I get the same invitation every few months. Sometimes in a private conversation, sometimes in a group setting, sometimes I actually get a formal invitation to come and address a gathering, like a a Christian gathering in many cases. And the question that people wanna ask me is, so in the absence of God, Without the moral absolutes of divine revelation, how is it possible for human beings to be good? How do you even know what goodness is? Where do you get the motivation to be a good person if there is no God and no heaven and no hell? If there's no punishment for being bad and no reward for being good, why bother? And I always think, God, you have really pulled the wool over these people's eyes, man. What an absurd question. I mean, insulting You know, because there's just sort of the people that are asking that question are always sort of presuming that there is none, that you you don't have an answer, that it's not possible to be good without God, because that's what they've been taught and that's what their kind of worldview tells them. It's just so weird, and it's absurd. Because like, look around you. Like, do you not? Are you not paying attention? The the whole God thing. It does not seem to be a very reliable source of moral strength and clarity. I mean, even if you believe in God, you probably ought to have a backup system for moral strength and clarity because the God thing does not seem to deliver. And so I, you know, I, I, I find it a, an insulting question. I find it an absurd question, but I find it an irresistible question because really, I'm fascinated not only with how to be good, but like where that impulse comes from in the first place, like where. If, if if the categories, I don't believe in objective goodness and objective evil. I believe that in some sense we're we've figured out these categories on the basis of our subjective experience. But I'm like, how did that work? Where did that come from? Why are those categories so important to us and so driving? Why are they so important to me? Because they are. Desperately want to make the most of my life and, and, and I want to do the right thing. And like, where does that come from? Like, where do these categories come from? And. And also, like, how can we more effectively harness them to become who we want to become to satisfy the desires? I mean, I'm interested in where my sexual desire comes from on the one hand, and I'm interested in satisfying that desire on the other. I'm interested in where my hunger for food comes from on the one hand. I'm interested in satisfying that desire on the other. I'm interested in understanding where does my impulse to morality come from in the first place, but I'm interested in satisfying it on the other. And that's kind of why I'm glad to be part of this conversation on the show. And grateful for the people that come on and sort of try to help me figure it out. And like, I got to tell you, the conversation I'm about to share with you, with somebody who, who's been on the show before, William Derizowitz, he's super smart. He's super literate, curious and interested and intense and all those good things. And thinks really deeply about culture and society, morality, beauty and art and all kinds of stuff. Um, and this book, his, most, his latest book is called The End of Solitude. And it's a bunch of essays, some of which are new, some of which are older, all of which are kind of in, in his voice, in his very distinctive voice, which I like. I think that there's something to learn about a conversation that flows easily. And I think there's something to learn when you watch people that are sort of trying to sort each other out and not not always succeeding. And so like what I'm proud of in this conversation is kind of the persistence that William and I have. And I think that it pays off in the end. At least it paid off for me. And I hope it pays off for you. And this is me and William Derizawis, super smart guy talking about super smart stuff on Humanosomy. Well, it's so good to to sort of hear you again. It's good to be here again. I got to tell you, um, it's it's essays are the most interesting way, I think, of reading a book of somebody you actually know. Huh. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of reading the essay. Well, of course you have. You've had the experience of reading essays of people you know. Yeah, sure. You know, because sometimes, like you know, you have lunch with somebody and you go like, "Well, what was that?" Oh, well, we ended up talking mainly about mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. or that. And I feel like an essay is sort of much more so than when I read a novel by somebody or a biography by somebody that I know. Like, there's so much going on there, but like an essay, you go like, "Okay, I just had a conversation with that person." Hmm. Yeah,
1: I never thought of it that
0: way. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That that that's why I that's why we have these podcast interviews so that I can you know, regale people with pearls of...
1: why you get the big bucks. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I recently wrote a letter to the people that support this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I do it every month. You know, I used to write a newsletter to the whole wide world. Now I write one to about 100 people, 150 people that are kind of the inside crew on the podcast. And uh, in it, I ended up sharing what I think is my late 50s maybe early 60s provisional definition of a good person okay which as you might have guessed has changed a lot over the decades of my life um but these days i think of a good person as someone who's consciously trying to be one
1: huh um
0: that that you know people people start with different things in the tank, they have different traumas or experiences that they have. So like, I'm not weighing anybody on an absolute scale, but when I see somebody who's really trying to be good, I go like, okay, well, that's, that's, that's what I can ask. And as I was reading through these essays on one level, they read to me sort of like the super literate journal entries of someone who for the last two decades, at least has been wrestling with the world for a moral blessing like they feel like somebody trying to be good. <laughs> Interesting. Does that do, do you feel like you're a person who's trying to be good?
1: Um yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. Um but I've never thought of my essays as an expression of that. Um I think of them as the expression of someone who's trying to understand uh, reality, um, which I, I don't know if that sounds pretentious, uh, you know, just trying to understand uh, the truth, trying to understand what I see around me, which like trying to be good is, a, is an inevitably futile quest if you are aiming at perfection. But I think also like trying to be good is something that you, you're, you always have to keep doing. I mean, whatever stage you're getting at, um, it's a perpetual, I think that's a recognition that I came to relatively late, that sort of, uh, I say that in, in one, of the la- one of the latest, one of the most recent essays in the collection, which is the one about Harold Rosenberg, the great mid-century, uh, mid-20th century intellectual, uh, and it's the way I start that essay and I say, you know, he made me realize that what it means, you know, that it be, you know intellectual is not something that you are. It's something that you're perpetually striving to be. It's a daily occupation simply to face reality and try to think.
0: Yeah. And I guess, you know, and if you, to face reality and try to think or to, to to understand the world, however you want to say it, it kind of raises, you know, like it raises the question to what end? I mean, that's what made oh, me think of it I as see, a more a moral struggle because I, I I I you know, I counsel a lot of people and couples. And sometimes you'll be talking to a couple and you'll realize that they know the emotional landscape of each other's lives very well. And that information can either be used to protect a person and to guard to keep them safe and to comfort them, or you can use that same information to just Stick the, stick the knife in, in the just the right place and really hurt them, um, and so you know when somebody says like I really want to understand my partner or I really want to understand this other person you know the psychopath wants to understand a person for one reason and the lover wants to understand it for a different reason and and so I, as I was reading through your entries you know the, the the different essays I realized like this is a person who's trying to understand the world. I mean, it's almost like, what are you paying attention to? You know, you're paying attention to the arts, you're paying attention to technology culture, you're you're paying attention to people and to the social imagination, how people relate to each other, education. And I'm thinking, okay, you're trying to understand how this stuff works because you want it to work better.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, I'm going to perseverate in in uh resisting what you're saying maybe just just to create before a you do that, that yeah before
0: you do that you're going to define the word per- perseverate for oh. me because i don't know it oh sorry
1: it's um, right. um, um, i'm not actually sure i know the dictionary definition <laughs> but it's it, it's because I, mean, I think it's actually used in a medical context it's like you keep doing something even though uh even though you should stop doing it. Oh, like persevere. It's like persevere. Okay. It's related yeah, yeah. Okay. to persevere. Go, um, ahead. Go ahead. Or pers- persist. I mean, it's not etymologically related to persist, but I mean, um, I'm just, I, I want to keep introducing this friction because I think it, it's a useful and maybe an interesting distinction. I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to claim that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an evil person or I'm uninterested in the good. Maybe I'm just wary of, you know, I, I, of even claiming that, but, it's, but it's, all, it's something more significant, which is that um, for me, the truth is an independent good, right? The truth is, you know, you're saying the truth for what? And I'm saying, well, we don't, in the first instance, we don't have to even ask for what. The truth itself is a valid end and it is not, as you point out, equivalent to the good. It's not coextensive to the good, with the good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, I mean, the, I think the good is the good, the way you're using the term and the way I would use it is a relational idea, right? It's you mm-hmm. know, being a good person. And to me, I think it's, it's for internal purposes. It's for me to feel like I have a more satisfactory relationship with reality. Like I need to feel like, how do I adjust myself to the world? and i mean not even just you know be a nice person live with other people but just like i mean i think uh, you know especially in recent years when our our sense of our relationship to the world has i think become more urgent and more irritated let's put it that way that we feel the world as more even more as a problem that that sense of do i feel like i'm in proper adjustment to the world has 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 become more salient I I think for all of us, does this make sense what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. But I mean, I'm going to perseverate a little bit myself here because I go like, why? Yes. The world is our, our relationship with the world feels much more urgent now. I think whether we're talking about the physical world of climate change or the, the world of ideas in the politics of our nation or the way in which ideas come to us in the whole technology thing that you write a bunch of essays about, um, or the way that we, the way that we initiate and educate young people into the world, you know, which is what mm-hmm. higher education, you know, all those things. Like, yeah, it all feels more urgent, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you, you say things are changing, and I, I gotta, I gotta adjust to this. And the question is, well, adjust, what do you mean adjust? Well, well, uh, I want to continue to, 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 to move down. Like I was moving in a direction and now everything's changing and I need to adjust so that I can keep moving in the direction I was moving or so that I can navigate in an even better direction. And like, as soon as you tell me about adjusting or navigating, I go like, ah, so there's a goal. And I, and I would sort of ask you like, what's the point of adjusting to reality? What do you think it is?
1: Um, well, first of all, I didn't use some of the words that you were using, so I'm not necessarily signing on to them. Okay. But um, look, let me try to frame this a different way. The having of opinions has become a salient aspect of being a modern person. Mm-hmm. I think to even to an artificial extent. <laughs> but especially in the age of social media, we are all concerned to have what we consider to be the right opinions. Um, that our opinions are valid pictures of reality. And it's it's sort of important to our sense of who we are in the world. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. It's important to our sense. It's important to my sense of who I am in the world. So I guess you could say, I mean, that's what it's for. That's what the truth is for. But I'm saying that isn't necessarily a moral purpose. To me, it's just kind of, I mean, you know, maybe... Maybe uh, this is unnecessary. Maybe this is superfluous. This is just the way I was born or the way I was bent. But it's like, it's really important to me to feel like I have as accurate a picture of reality as possible. Um, That's what I'm trying to say. And I think it's especially because we are so beset all the time, more than ever, again, because of social media, more than ever with pictures of reality, with pictures of reality that... That actually have very specific agendas for us. They may be commercial agendas, they may be political agendas, or ideological agendas.
0: Mm-hmm. Does, does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I get I, maybe maybe what I'm picking up on. If I was gonna, if somebody was gonna say to me, "What's the t- tone of your essays?" Or, maybe, well, I, I would ask you, like, what do you think? As you look at reality through these different lenses, you know technology, culture, higher education. As you look at the social imagination, you look at the arts. Yeah. What's the tone? Yeah. What do you, What do you think is your is your emotional tone? Like, do you look at these things with joy and wonder? Wow, this is so beautiful. I love what's happening here.
1: <laughs> it sounds like
0: a leading question. Um, I don't think because I, I don't think, think you do. I I feel like there's I feel no, like there's a certain I, amount of. Distress no. and disappointment. Yeah, I, I yeah. was going to say irony
1: and skepticism. <laughs> okay. Um, and again, I mean, maybe that is my, you know, my sort of innate disposition. Maybe it comes from family. Maybe it comes from being Jewish, and having been raised Jewish. And there's a certain history that comes with that, and certainly a certain irony and skepticism. But let me also say, just so people don't get the impression that all these essays are critical and sour, that one of the reasons that I love the arts is that that's where and and the reason i love sort of intellectual expression of, of others is that that's where a lot of the place where i find my joy you know so there're encomia in this book to various artists and thinkers who 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 give me a sense of joy so it's not like i'm i'm down on everything no um, but i am no. but but i do i think i do approach everything with a sense of uh, skepticism. And I, I mean, I think that's the appropriate way to approach
0: it. I kind of felt like you were down on everything that attacks the arts. Well, that may for the, be true too. That, there's, true. there's one, there's that one essay, there's that one essay you write where, uh where, where somebody's quoting an art, they're quoting scientists have proven that reading novels is right. good for us. Right. And, you know, I remember reading that same article and thinking, oh, this is great. You know, then another, another, Arrow, I can use to get people to read novels, and you were like, "This is horrible," because, like, the arts shouldn't need scientific data. Like, we should just right. know that.
1: We well, we, well, we should we should just know that, or we do know that because we've all read novels and have been enriched by novels, and to 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 try to argue for the value of fiction. Um, on the authority of science is precisely to undermine, undermine the value of fiction because fiction and art in general possesses its own authority. And it's the same authority that personal experience possesses. In other words, science, this is what scientism is, right? It's, the, it's not science. It's the belief that science is the exclusive way to gain access to reality, to gain, to gain access, uh, valid access to knowledge, right? Science is the way to answer all questions and that itself negates the the very reason that art exists and the independent value of art.
0: Yeah? Yeah. Yeah no, and no, I I mean I, I picked that up. And 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 you're right like when I found that when you were writing about the arts or when you were writing about particular artists um, that's the place where I like there was the highest level of sort of joy or energy coming out of you. Um Yeah. You know, even there was even the essay that you wrote about television yeah. and I, and, I, and I found myself thinking, gee, I, I should probably be calling Bill every few months and saying what are you watching? Because <laughs> um, you you probably think more carefully about what you watch than most of my friends.
1: Uh, unfor- I mean, that, that, that essay is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a response to several books that had been published about TV, I think around 2015. Uh, TV flourished as an art form in the first decade, decade and a half of the 20th century in a very unexpected way. I mean, it became a true art form. Uh, I'm not so sure that that's still true, unfortunately, for reasons we can talk about. But I do think that uh, the arts, that art, uh, represents, I'm going to make, I know you're very good at picking apart sweeping generalizations. So I'll make one with the understanding that it's probably too sweeping, but I think it represents, uh, the most intensive way, the most intensive, intensive expression of, of humanness. Right. I mean, if you want to, if you want to get the most concentrated dose of humanness, in a certain sense, even more than actually interacting with another human, uh, than watch a play or listen to a great song or a symphony or read a great book or watch a great television show because it's a kind of distillation. I mean, you were talking at the beginning about how long does it take to write something. And I, th- I, I think it's from an essay where I mentioned uh, that, I don't think I actually, I say, I say this somewhere else, but basically like... No one has ever written literary fiction at the rate faster than about one page a day. And most people, it's even slower. So think about that. I mean, think about how it would take if you weren't, if you were just writing an email to write a page, it could just take a few minutes. And here are these, you know, literary geniuses who are laboring over sometimes just a few sentences, and it takes them a day, or it takes them a month to write a poem. So it's a distillation by the means of art, by the sort of concentrated means of expression. You know, I like to say that poetry is language in a state of excitement. The language that you are excited, right? Uh, But the language is excited. The language is compressed. And so it is with all of the arts. And I think that that's why, I think that's why the arts bring me and can bring so many other people such great joy and also such great uh, wisdom.
0: Yeah, that's... I feel like one of the things that a lot of people are trying to sell me on these days is this idea of first thought, best thought. Like, I, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and 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 I'm I'm guessing you don't think that's true.
1: No, and, and you know, there's that there's that essay in there that has traveled kind of widely called "Solitude and Leadership," which was actually a talk a talk I gave to the the plebes the first years at West Point. Um, where I say exactly that I'm trying to talk about, they asked me to come and talk to them about solitude. And I thought they're not going to care about solitude. So I'll talk about something they do care about, which is leadership. It's a big, big word there. And I'll try to connect the two. And I ended up, and I, I ended up writing a talk that was about the value of sitting alone and thinking and, 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 and turning off your devices. And why would that be valuable? Well, oh, I that, think was
0: my, that was one of my favorite essays. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I mean, because it has the word leadership in the title, it's been taught at a lot of places that I never sure. thought my work, you know, in business schools and stuff and military colleges. But, um, you know, what I say there is that even for myself, my first thought is never my best thought. My first thought is just the reactions that I've been taught to have to any given thing. Uh, by my environment. My first thought is everybody else's thought. It's the conventional wisdom.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's the thought that's probably the most conditioned by what's around you, what other people are saying, what, you know, little memes in your head, you know, that, and that's, and in that essay, one of the things that you say is, you know, so our military gets in trouble, our companies get in trouble, our, our, any, any institution gets in trouble when its leaders are not Having their own thoughts when they are yeah. following along, but what what I liked about that essay, I mean, it's not an accident that, that was my favorite, and it's not because I'm a leadership geek. It's because your definition of solitude in that was not just introspection, not just sitting alone with your thoughts, but you knew you talked about how focused work, um, sort of the flow kind of work, but yeah. like, like when somebody's in a garden for an hour and a half working on something or when they're trying, that that's a kind of solitude that tends to reveal or, or, or even form character. Um, and you talked about how sustained reading, which some would say, well, that's not solitude. You're taking in somebody else's thought, but you're like, no, no, no. When you're, when you're alone with a book, you're in a conversation, but but there's a sense in which it slows down enough for you to really think about what you're encountering. It's a way of encountering reality.
1: I think what you're pointing to is something that I didn't manage to articulate in the essay. But it's that the thing that we're talking about now as solitude is, is, is best known through the way it feels it involves whatever it's reading or gardening or thinking or even talking to someone in a, you know, if, if it's a really deep conversation, it's a kind of, it's a kind of emotional state of uh, stillness or tranquility. I mean, I talk about the word con- concentration. You're con- what is, I mean, we, you know, we know what that means, but, but think, I mean, think about it in the other sense, you are gathering yourself into a single point rather than being dispersed out in the sort of electronic or social cloud. And that's a very enriching kind of state.
0: And you're turning one idea over and looking at it from a variety of different angles, which is why like when you read someone else's book, it will sometimes shed a different angle on something you've been thinking about. Or when you talk to another human being in a friendship, uh, in a sustained conversation, it's a kind of solitude because it, it you know, how many times have you walked away from a one-on-one conversation with somebody and you've been challenged or you're thinking differently because of the conversation and you then, you continue to think long after the person has left the room because of, you know, and so you go like, it's a way, of, it's, a, it's another kind of introspection or another kind of thinking about and, and figuring out what you really think, not what everyone's thinking, but what what do you really think?
1: Yeah. And I would also say you're, what you're making me think is that that energy that I was talking about before, that emotional state, I think we feel it in a book, in a, in a, in a, in a true book, you know, there are lots of books that are just kind of cranked out, but, but in a Uh, A a, a real book is a product of that state, and we feel that energy emanating from the book. And I think in a a true, long, deep conversation, we feel it emanating from the person we're talking to. And it's that that energy, as much as the ideas that may be expressed, that is affecting and enriching us.
0: Can Can you share with me a book that you had that relationship with? I mean, I know there are many, but can you yeah, share sure. with me just like one that you would say, yeah, that's a book that I had that emotional experience with?
1: Sure. I mean, I'll just pick the last book that I was true of, which was fortunately the last book I read, which is, there's a there's a, a critic who died recently named Dave Hickey. He was a, an extraordinary figure. He was a great art critic and a great music critic. And, and he was completely different from what you imagine. I mean, he grew up working class, Texas, Southern California, lived in Las Vegas for a long time, just sort of socially and personality wise, completely different from sort of an East Coast Mandarin. And he wrote these amazing essays uh, that have only a few of them have been collected so far. Um, But one collection is called Invisible Dragon. It's about beauty and how beauty as a value has been expunged from the art world. And he talks about beauty and he relates it to desire. And, um, I just, it's the kind of book where I'm just constantly stopping to take notes. And it's just, it was, I mean, I probably took 10 pages of notes from that book and it's a really short book. It's maybe a hundred pages, Invisible Dragon. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's, 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 you know, he's a great writer and he, and his energy is, is distilled in the prose. It's embodied in the prose. And then when you read the prose, it, that energy is released. And it and it inspires energy in you. Um, I think you know. Now that I think about it, I think this is what Emerson meant. He talked about power, but not in a political sense. He talked about how you know writing contains power, and then it transmits that power.
0: No, I I, I hear you. I mean, what's funny is is that I don't know that. I mean, my interest in doing a podcast is that I used to have. Power, that kind of power, as a preacher. I mean, again, it's not the same as reading a book, is it? Um, overhearing voices no, they're, isn't the same.
1: They're different, but 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 I think they're in the same ballpark. You know, this makes me. This may be a little bit to the side of what you're what you're saying right now, but I just wanted to go back and redeem first thought, best thought, because uh, years ago I reviewed a book of, uh, like, the selected interviews of Allen Ginsberg. It was a really interesting book because he was a great talker, he was a great, I think it's called Spontaneous Mind, and he was a great talker, not just because he was a great poet but because he was a lifelong meditator and he believed in first thought, best thought. So his spontaneous utterances were were wonderfully profound and rich. But the point I'm making here is that it was the result of a practice.
0: Yeah, they were flowing out of his own thoughts. They weren't flowing out of the cultural soup because, soup that he had been drinking. Because of his meditative
1: yeah, practice yeah. to clear away all of the voices. Right. And the reason I wanted to come back and get that is because I think one way to talk about what we've been talking about is that these are all practices. Reading, conversing, conversing in the context of a podcast may be a special case of that kind of practice. Writing, teaching
0: preaching focused focused work yeah
1: these are all practices yeah and as my friend Harold Rosenberg said you have to practice these things every day um of course there's great pleasure in in practicing them too it's not a chore but the point is this is th- these are these are things you enact
0: yes my jewish friend you're talking about practices that must be Mm. carried out each day in order for you to maintain your proper relationship with reality yes yeah and and you know we're talking you know we're talking religion Yep. okay we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back
2: hi humanize me producer katie here if you're interested in supporting the work we do patreon is the place to do it And now, for the cost of a cup of coffee, you'll get Patreon-only bonus episodes every month. These extra episodes include things like behind-the-scenes insight, topic deep dives, and additional tidbits. They're also just a ton of fun, so check them out at patreon.com backslash me. Thanks for listening!
0: I, I think that that's where where I would say you 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 remind me of some of my old evangelical friends these days in the sense of you, you the world is the world is coming in and it's it's challenging or it's attacking or it's undermining your religion and your religion isn't a supernatural one it isn't a, it isn't about God but the, but it's a seri- it's it's a more Jewish one like it's about practices that you believe are better than. What's what they're being replaced with?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm shying away from the the value word better, although probably disingenuously because I, I mean, I do make arguments about you know, one, it's better to have solitude in your life than not.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that that was the, talking to those West Pointers. Sure, you were you were trying sure. to sell them on solitude.
1: I was, but it's also. And I think this has been a big change for me over. I mean, in the last decades, um, it's really important to me not to forget that. Uh, what, what, what do you Christians say? Uh,
0: hey, don't call these me. I'm not a
1: Christian. What do you Christians say? Uh, many gifts, one spirit. Right. So there are many different paths, and what what's a good practice for me is not necessarily a good practice for someone else. And I and I'm. I mean, I was asked to come in to talk to these kids, but more broadly, I would say I'm offering these ways to people as possible practices. I like but they that. aren't necessarily going to be right for everybody.
0: No, I like that because that's I, I, this is a, th- a running theme of me as a human being that I gave up fundamentalist Christianity a long time ago, yeah. but I I'm still struggling to get rid of the fundamentalism and then you know in the sense of I have a tendency to to, to towards this is the way. This is, this is the one way. I'm looking for the one best way of being a good person without any supernatural nonsense. But there are many ways to be, you know, and, and, and you're right. Like the practice that you're, the, the practice that really causes one person to grow and to thrive may be very, very different than the practices that cause another person to grow and thrive. Um, Absolutely. can I, can I ask you a personal question? C- sure. Cause I felt like, you know, I, I mean, I read the, th- I, you know, as I looked at the six themes of the book, I found myself thinking like, as I read the essays, I thought I just keep coming back to two overarching concerns that I keep noticing you being interested in. And one of them is focus. Mm-hmm. What takes away our focus? What distracts us from thinking deeply about things? Um, but the other one was friendship. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're, friendship shows up all over these essays. What's your definition of friendship? Uh, I can tell you how I practice friendship. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm interested in.
1: Well, you know, I mean, it's not. It won't surprise you to learn that uh, I I I am what I've I, what I've learned to call myself an uh, an introvert. Um, and one characteristic they say of introverts is that you have fewer friends, but your friendships are, I don't know, deeper or more intense, or, you know, you'll talk for hours, you know, you'll a party will exhaust you, but a long one-on-one conversation will energize you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that is, you know, I'm not that I don't, I don't do a lot of stereotypically guy kind of friendship things like go and do things with friends, you know, play three on three basketball or go fishing or right, something right. like that's not me. Um, I have, you know, I will get on the phone with a friend who I had a friend who was in New Zealand during the pandemic and now is back in New York and another friend who lives in Atlanta and, and we'll get on the phone and we'll have a three hour conversation every once in a while. And, and that's how we enact our friendship.
0: In one of the essays, you talked about the difference between what you called a therapeutic friendship and a kind of a morally challenging friendship and And I got the impression that you know that you know you hang around with college students, I hang around with college students and I will meet a lot of kids who define their friendships by somebody who offers them unconditional support. Mm. um. Yeah somebody who's there for them, somebody who listens, somebody who is always on their side. Yeah. And my sense is that you you sort of said like that, that, that therapeutic friend who takes that, who provides unconditional personal regard. Um, that's not the kind of friendship you're interested in. Um.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be clear, this is an ideal, you know, it's, it's not any easier for me that I think that maybe it's marginally easier for me to be honest with a friend when I think they're the story they're telling me is actually they're on the they're actually on the wrong side of that story, uh, and it's not any easier for me to hear somebody tell me that you know they think that I'm that I'm wrong or that I'm doing something wrong.
0: It's it's interesting it's because it, it's one of the reasons that I ultimately, after fighting it a long time, embrace the idea of calling myself a humanist. Mm-hmm. And and embrace the idea of secular humanism as a religion mm. is because one of the things that I really missed when I left Christianity was that there was an understanding that if we were friends, one agenda in our friendship was to make each other better Christians. mm mm-hmm. And when I left that faith and people were, you know, people were, you know, they were riding bikes and hiking together and doing all that guy stuff. But sometimes when a person would share something with me and I would push and I would go like, wow, do you really want, like, it seems like you could be so much kinder to that person or it seems like your skills, you could do a lot more good in the world if you shifted over to this or whatever. People would be sort of like, whoa, whoa. Like, what are you trying to do here? Like yeah. I'm not your you, are you too. making a, yeah, are you are you, like it's like you're not my father. And I was like, <laughs> no, nah, no, I'm yeah. not your father. I'm your brother. I'm your brother and and like mm. we're in this family together. i'm I'm trying to make, yeah, I'm trying to make you better. and I like, boy, I hope you're trying to make me better. Yeah. and I needed to get back into an overt circle of friendship where people were like, yes. We are all committed to becoming better lovers of other people, and 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 becoming more more honest and more you know even in this intellectual sense you know to sort of be like I want we really want to face up to reality. And when we see one of our friends who's denying some aspect of reality, I'm just one of the things I appreciate yeah. about my son. My son a lot is my son when he gets a new truth, he calls me up and says, "Hey, here's this thing I'm learning." And if I don't show interest in it, or if I don't agree with him, th- I know what the course of the next year of our friendship is going to be about. Because he's he's like if if something is true, I need you to deal with it. Wow. Yeah. And and, and and I I guess I I kind of I I think that you know some of the artistic friendships that you talked about in the book you know, the, the classic mm-hmm. friendships, mm-hmm. It's, it feels like those people were less interested in like, do I enjoy your company when we're bowling? And they were more interested in is, are you challenging me to be, to be my best self?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is this classical uh, notion of friendship that I talk about in, the, in that big essay on friendship. Yeah. You know, Aristotle talks about it. Virtue is central to it. Um, we have evolved to a very different attitude about it. But I would say, and again, this just occurs to me as you're talking, although I'm sure it's been said before, it's not just that a friend is someone who's going to tell you or someone to whom you will say, I think maybe you, know, you need to look at what you're doing. It's, the, it's sort of your moral audience. Like when I think about who, whose opinion do I really care about? Because I write things that are controversial sometimes, and I think off-putting, I know they're off-putting to some people because I hear about it, but that doesn't bother me. What does bother me is the thought that one of my true friends is going to think less of me because of something I've written. So they're sort of my moral audience, maybe in the way that for a religious person, person, that audience is God.
0: Yeah, and for most of the young people I work with, their audience is literally an audience. They're they're performing for for 9,000 friends or they're performing for TikTok or and 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 I think that that's one of the things that I worry about is is that when people are when when their most important relationships are kind of crowdsourced yeah um it's very different than an individual friendship I mean I, I you you at one and you, at one point you you talk about this like the difference between Friendship with an individual and friendship with a a group and a circle of friends. Yeah. Um,
1: Especially especially like the social media
0: group. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it feels like the social media group, it's impossible for that group to serve that same function of that you're talking about with your friends where you're like, it would matter to you what they think of you. It's different when you matter what an audience thinks of you, oh, yeah. than, when you than when you matter what an individual I thinks mean, of is, you. I mean,
1: this is why our age has invented the term virtue signaling. That's what that's about. But it's incredibly superficial, right? I mean, uh, the, the signal is very superficial. It's just, you know, you just post something online. And, the, and the, way you're be, the way you're being evaluated and really more deeply, like what your audience knows of you. I mean, another way we could define true friendship is that two people, it's two people who know each other really well, who, who, uh, who know each other, I think who accept each other, um, kind of on a premoral level, but, but just fundamentally, like, you know, in, in, in all the complexity and all the sort of, sort of modeled moral nature that any person has, whereas this, you know, this social media thing is just, it's just a bunch
0: of crap. What? I mean, we all I- know that. It is, but it's kind of where I get back to like, well, maybe the hiking isn't such a bad idea after all, because um, the way people get to know each other a lot now is by sharing sort of, by per, by disclosure. Like somebody posts an article, like right. this is how, this is who I am, or this i of, these are 25 things to know about me, um, or this is what I like, um, and this is what I'm against, and this is what I'm for. And so you can have an incredible amount of information about somebody's sexual proclivities, the trauma, that, the trauma that they've been through, the, the the particular taste that they have, the kinds of food they eat. But, I, you know, I, I, all these people that are disclosing so much nevertheless seem very oftentimes report to me that they're very lonely. And I think, yeah, there's a difference between knowing somebody via personal disclosure and knowing them via observation and experience, like being with them.
1: I agree. Um, Again, uh, something that's never occurred to me before, you know, especially quite frankly, now that I think there's this real animus against uh, masculinity and men and the male way of being in the world. And that includes friendship. And, you know, guys don't talk about things with each other. They just play basketball. Well, you know, somebody, I think you know somebody very well if you play basketball with them every week. You know what kind of—not just what kind of basketball player they are, but I mean, it's—it's a moral act too, right? Do they cheat? Do they pass? You know, do they bring, you know, soda for everybody? I mean, any any activity, we're going to know ourselves. We're going to know other people.
0: That's right. As a therapist, it's really hard. People come in and they tell me how they are in 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 my office, but like if I don't get to see them, what they tell me and what they really what they really believe about themselves. Like somebody will say like. I'm a real, I'm a really, you know, compassionate person. And then you like watch them in a basketball game and you go like, no, you're not. Right. Right.
1: Um, But again, not to exclude the conversation either. I mean, when I talk with my friends, it's not a therapy session. We're not, you know, disclosing ourselves directly. It's like, you know, we're talking about ideas. We're talking about the world. And that's our, that's an, that's a, that's a, that's an enactment as well.
0: Yeah, right. I, yeah, I, but and, and again, I I on some level it would be the difference between giving you a list of my five favorite TV shows and telling you about an episode that I really loved. Right. You you you'd get much more of a sense of who I am as a person, you know, when we get into the story and we, and when you hear how I'm responding to this thing rather than just that I like it. Right. Yeah. Um yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, one it, it, of the, you know, first, first, you know, like direction of screenwriting, right. Is show people the character, don't tell them about them, right. you know, right. and I think in some ways it's the same way in these relationships and it, it, that there's a sense in which that's, where are spending time together and conversation is part of, it's a kind of, it's a way of spending time, but it's very different. Spending time with somebody and getting things through conversation, through, through an interaction with them than it is listening to their confession or reading their memoir or reading their Facebook page, which is kind of a curated kind of disclosure. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, and yeah. I, I'm just, I'm no longer, I, my, my trust in disclosure is, is diminishing by the, by the, by the day.
1: Right. I mean, I mean. You know, people don't know themselves. People are revealed through action. I mean, that's sort of the classic, you know, definition of drama, right? Character revealed through action. Uh, You know, memoir. I mean, memoirs is. is, I mean, you know, they they can be. But I mean, a, a social media. I mean, it's all you know, Facebook or what is it now, TikTok or Instagram. I mean, it's not just that it's very superficial, but it seems. And this, you know, this is where the book starts, right? Uh, it seems the very goal of the quote-unquote disclosure is different. It is to create this kind of image. It's like we're all miniature celebrities. We're all constructing personae for the consumption of others in order for them to validate back to us our preferred way of seeing ourselves. And that doesn't really get anybody anywhere. And it certainly doesn't get us to goodness. It doesn't get us to self knowledge. It doesn't get us to intimacy.
0: Yeah. Which you know, yeah, and 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 as I said, as I read you writing about friendship, as I read you writing around about lost focus. And by the way, have, have you encountered Johann Hari's book "Stolen Focus" yet?
1: I think I've read about it. I haven't. Uh,
0: yeah, it's I haven't it. it's. I mean, you would. I. At you would you would grok it in a heavy way. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting book, um, but uh, as, as I as I was thinking about as I was seeing those things, I, I do feel like you know that's where I keep coming back to. Like it does feel like your your interest is around goodness. I mean, it is around truth but truth in the, in, 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 in the service of intimacy in the, in the service of connection in the service of, of social goodness. I, I, and, you know, again, like maybe I'm imposing that, you know, maybe I'm a hammer and I see everything as a nail. Um, but it really does feel, you know, as I read you and as I talk to you, you do come around to, it always feels like the, the problem with something that's a problem is that it takes us away from our focus or that it takes us away from one another.
1: You know, um, I, will, I, I can relate better to what you're saying if I can define goodness. And I feel like maybe this is what Aristotle says. It's been a long time since I've read him. But, you know, because I think the sort of natural association with the word good is, you know, he's sort of moral with respect to other people. But like, but rather, and not to exclude that, but 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 I'd rather define it as you know what is a good life, what is the the good life, for an individual, and to me it is, um, and I think to Aristotle, it is it's sort of the fullest exercise or expression of our humanity. It's and I know that can be a very problematic word because it's so squishy. Of course, it's the word that's at the center of humanism. But like, what I feel is most, uh, is, is most insidious about social media is that it, it just kind of, it, it diminishes, it robs us, it drains us, it saps us of our humanity, of, of being a, you know, again, it's hard to define, but, uh, how alive do you feel? How present do you feel? And, 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 you know, maximizing that maximizing, To get back, maximizing my presence in reality, my connection to reality, or as some people call it, God, uh, is to me sort of the essence of the good life, of of goodness in its most comprehensive definition. So I'm definitely willing to to accept that that is ultimately what I'm always trying to argue for, or enact, or... You
0: know. yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and at the, and at the risk of being a, a scientism follower, yeah. like, you know, one of the things that I'm most aware of as I study biology is just that the, the essential nature of all living things that persist is that they, they have some kind of like the basic instinct is to propagate forward. Is to keep life mm. going. Mm. Like life wants to live, mm. and all the other values, it feels to me, flow out of that one. That cooperation and love on a human level, or a- a- any value, comes back to like this is. These are the thing. These all these things evolved out of. They're all adaptations aimed at keeping life going because life is the ultimate and, and the original value. And, and so you know when I define goodness, a big part of it is like how do you how do you live in such a way that life goes on and how do you live in such a way that the value of life is fully expressed in you and that you again you 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 make the most of life that life yeah. life itself is the value um, yeah. and, and I think like you know and again like just because science says it, doesn't make it true, but also just because science says it doesn't make it not true. And no, I think- but
1: I mean, maybe this is, maybe I'm once again harping
0: on an unnecessary
1: extinction. No, 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 uh, distinction. No, I'm going to say something else, which is, and maybe I'm taking you too literally, but science, science means, in the way you were just talking about it, science means life in a literal sense. It means, you know, the goal is always propagation. Uh, once you've propagated, life could care less. Once you've propagated and nurtured your children to the point where they can propagate, whatever org- kind of organism you are, life doesn't care about you anymore. And I think that one of maybe the thing that makes being human distinctive, makes being yeah. a, a civilized or social human distinctive, is that we each feel whatever other people feel about us. We each feel that our life, in and of itself, not for the sake of propagating life, but for the sake of us having the richest possible sense of our own lives. The richest possible experience, being alive, it, so that it's not just biological, uh, and that's really life, kind of in almost a metaphoric sense, to say that I want more life. Well, what do you mean? You want more life? You're alive. You'll have as much life now as you'll have until the moment you die. No, I'm talking about something no, else. I'm yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, the right, sense right. of being alive, that sense of intensity, that sense of presence, that sense to go back of attention.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean that's why, and that's why I'm a humanist more than I'm a lifeist in the yeah. sense of the human experience is the one I'm most loyal to. Um, yeah. and, 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 it, and it does, you know, on, on some level there comes a point at which I don't just like, I am loyal to not just my life. I'm, I'm loyal. Like I would give up my life for, for the lives of certain other people. Um, or, you know, yeah. because I value life itself as well as my own life. Um, But, but there is a sense in which, yeah, I, I, I think goodness has to do with, um, enabling and protecting and making possible those kinds of expressions. And that's why, you know, that's why art is not only the high point of your book, but in many ways, you know, kind of the most beautiful expression of our humanity, um, It was funny though. I, 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 I I want, I, I know we're going to run out of time here and, and, and I, I, there's just one thing I wanted to share with you Um, because one of my favorite of your essays, um, I don't know that, I I don't know where you wrote, where it, where it appeared, but it was just you reflecting on this teacher that had meant so much to you after he died.
1: Yeah. My, my Um, doctoral dissertation director. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, and and what he had meant to you and what, and, 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 and you said how, gr- how how grieved you were when he died, in a sense, more grieved even than when your father had died, because yeah. you had the conversation wasn't over. Right. You 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 weren't you weren't done with him. Right. Um, and as soon as I read that, I reflected on one of my favorite poets is a fellow named David White. And uh David White had written an essay on friendship. And I I mean, this this paragraph just jumped into my mind as soon as I read this. And I thought, when I when I get Bill on the phone, I'm gonna tell him this. Um But White, in the end of his essay says, friendship transcends disappearance. Mm. An enduring friendship goes on after death. The exchange only transmuted by absence, the relationship advancing and maturing in a silent internal conversational way, even after one half of the bond has passed on. And, and, and I was thinking about your professor and I was thinking about your essays and the way that they have impacted me and a lot of other people. And I thought, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're still talking to him, you know, you're, you know, and, and, and I think he would be proud of you on that level Um, that I, you know, so, so, and, and I think about people in my life that are gone, but that their voices are still in my head. And as I change my relationship to them changes and you go like, well, how could your relationship to somebody change after they're dead? And you go like, uh, as long as, as long as one of us is changing, our relationship is changing Mm. and it, and it goes on.
1: It's a nice way to think about it. Yeah. Um, It's this remarkable thing that we can create, you know, objects, uh, poems that, that, uh, Somebody, I mean, if it's a really great poem, somebody 2,000 years later who lives in a completely different culture and speaks a completely different language can come upon, and it's alive for them. I mean, this is a remarkable thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and so, you know, I, I take all of that, you know, I take it all in it at, at, at once, and I sort of think like, yeah, you're, you're, you know, one of your essays is railing about the danger of PC, you know, on college campuses and, you know, and, you know, social media and this and that. And I think like, you know, but when I, I guess what I see you sort of trying to protect or trying to, you know, hold on to or hold up are, are, is that, that reality that a poem can last a thousand years and, can, yeah. You know that we're we're able to touch each other in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's. I mean, I mean, the thing that that I hate the most about the way literature is approached in the academy, and I think what we used to call political correctness now we call wokeness, is so much about is that uh, it 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 thinks the present is better and wiser than the past. It it only. The only use it has for the past is to preach to it, is to lecture to it, is to denigrate it, is to demonstrate its superiority before it. And in that sense, and this is so characteristic of our age for other reasons, in that sense, the past no longer becomes available. The past is, is euthanized. Uh, we so much live in the present moment because on the internet, the only moment is the present moment. And, and uh, you know, what, what ours does and what I think some of my essays are trying to do is to make the past available again. Uh, it's like the it's the you know it's like the third dimension of of humanity, right? Is the dimension of time, the dimension of the past.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah it's fine. It's fine. I was just listening to them talk about that new space telescope they've got that mm-hmm. they can see so far, like that they're literally looking back in time to you know, billions and billions of years ago and seeing light that was made then. There is this kind of sense in which, um, you know, that's all neat, theoretical, beautiful stuff, but there is something about when you pull out the letter that your grandfather wrote to your grandmother and you're really holding something. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Hey, like for what it's worth on the validation scale, um, you know, I value your work. I value your perspective so much. It's been so helpful to me. And, uh, you know, I don't do many of these where somebody sends me a book and I read it and then have them on to talk about it in the hopes that some of my people will get excited by them and buy the book. Um, uh, precisely because like, that, yeah, I, I, that's not usually my gig, but I, I, I'm really, I'm really glad that we're in conversation from time to time. And I'm really glad to, to sort of share that conversation with people because I feel like you're onto something.
1: Thanks. You know that's that's a form of validation that I'm very happy to have because All right. I want this work to mean something to people.
0: Yeah. Well, it means something to me. Good. So, yeah. Thanks for talking, man.
1: Thank you. It's always great to talk to you.
0: We'll talk again soon. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. All right, that was it. That was me and William Derizowicz. What'd you think? I, like I feel like I was playing tennis with somebody who was at a different level, and I was just not able to give them a good game. I feel like there was more there that, like, somebody who was a better interviewer would have gotten out of him. I re- maybe it's just I wanted us to be in sync because I thought like if we had had one of those finishing each other's sentences, conversations, that would mean I was as smart as him and we were peers. And I think we're probably not peers because I haven't read as much and I haven't produced as much. And I got ADHD and I never get anything done and William doesn't and he gets a lot of stuff done. Sometimes we get together with a friend or we have an opportunity and we do okay, but we know that we left something on the table. We know that we we didn't fully get at the best of that person. We didn't bring out of them. We didn't shine a light on the place where they could shine. And it's okay to sort of walk away from a situation and go like, okay, I need to learn from that. I need to concentrate more. I need to be more less concerned about how I come off in the conversation and more concerned about making sure that I'm really I'm really curious and I'm really getting at, at what this person wants to tell me in this moment. Jeez, he says a lot of good stuff. And one of the things that he says that I think would be really, is a really good leaving it go uh, message. And that is, you won't be able to recognize the things you really care about until you have released your grip on all the things that you've been taught to care about. I think a lot of us have had that experience of of gripping things that we were taught were important um, and that crippling us from being able to really evaluate or being able to evaluate clearly what is really important to us. And so there's a thought for the week. What were you taught to care about? And to what degree have you released it? And what have you embraced? What do you really care about now that you can say, "I know, I rec—this is something that really matters to me because I appropriated it for myself, or I reappropriated it for myself, and I hold on to it not because I was taught it was important, but because it genuinely matters to me." Yeah. That's enough. That's enough profundity for one day, right? All right. Catch you
2: next time on Humanize Me. To hear an exclusive extra episode every month, please go to patreon.com slash humanize me. You'll also get Bart's monthly newsletter over there and get access to some great Humanize Me merch. Our supporters on Patreon are the ones making this show happen. For more information on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. Also, if you choose to listen to the podcast on Spotify, we have a listener poll that you can take part in every episode, including this one. So join us on Spotify. Humanize Me is produced by Katie Johnson-Smith, me, John Wright, and Bart Campolo. You could be larger than life.
0: Those were good credits, John. Now, who are the other uncredited stars of this world as in our Patreon
2: folks who's who 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 make this thing happen? All right, so we got to thank Linda Irma Jimenez. Is it Wait, no, it's not Jimenez, it's Jimenez. Oh, oh, of course, of course Dude, I should know. Dude, you live in Arizona. You got to know. I know. know that. Well, I should have known with the little uh accent over the E. Yeah. I should have known I was talking Jimenez. about a a Spanish name here, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marianne Wendling, Mark Allen, Matthew Wipert, and Mark Rogers. And and a, a beautiful thank you to
0: all of you, because um, it's just so meaningful to us to have you with
2: us. Yeah. So just thank you for making. Well, we the we say happen. it all the time. They they yeah. make the show happen, and it's and it's yeah. true. We wouldn't be doing it without them
0: no and, and like the thing is is that these are the people that are given money right but I get a bunch of like under the radar emails from people saying like thanks so much like I just had a great experience with my family that I wouldn't have had if it hadn't have been for episode blank or thanks so much like that really helped me you know um, I've been struggling with the suicidal ideation of that show where you talk to that lady that would make a difference Like I get those all the time and so you know, like Marianne or, you know, like this is what's happening here. Like this yeah, show yeah. is actually like, like it's, it's, you know, it's really meaningful to have everybody here on the team because some good things happen out there in the world because of the conversations that we're having. So thanks. Beautiful. Yeah.